most of us get nervous when we speak in high stakes situations, be they planned or spontaneous. And spontaneous is answering questions, giving feedback, making small talk. And one of the things that happens when we get nervous is we perspire, we blush, we get shaky. And I call part of that plumbing reversal. What's normally wet gets dry and what's normally dry gets wet. So we get dry mouth, but sweaty palms, which does not help us in that moment where we have to communicate. You're listening to Paint and Pipette. I'm your host, Jeremy Utley. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Stanford University. Thanks for joining me to explore the art and science of bringing new ideas to life. Let's dive in. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Paint and Pipette podcast. I am delighted to have you with me today. If you wouldn't mind, be so kind as to drop your details into chat. Let us know where you're coming from. Even though we can't respond via this platform, we can see your comments and it helps us. If you have questions for Matt, my amazing guest today, feel free to drop them in the chat as well. Hopefully we get to cover everybody's questions. I am pleased to invite Matt to the stage. Matt Abrahams, professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business and author of the book, which you can see behind him, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Matt, thanks for joining us. Jeremy, I'm thrilled to be here and to continue the conversations you and I have had uh, many times while walking and and having coffee. This will be fun. Should we just pick up where we left off and just let the audience catch up with us? Do you think? Well, if I recall, the last time we were together, I got lost. So I don't know if I want to do that, but uh, happy to be here. I won't recommend a random park in the middle of Los Altos again. I apologize. Okay. We got a lot to talk about today because you have a lot of expertise to offer. When is, has the book published actually? Is it already out? Yesterday was the launch day. The book is out in the wild. All right. How does it feel? It feels great. It's really exciting. You know, you work so hard on it and, and I've just received wonderful reception from people. It's been great. I'm, I'm excited to see people put this stuff into use. Okay. I think, I mean, to me, there's nothing more timely and nothing more practical than tips and tricks and techniques for spontaneous speaking. I think when people hear this topic, as you note, even in your book, I mean, they immediately, I love what you call reverse plumbing. (laughs) I'm sure people are familiar with the phenomenon, but how do you describe reverse plumbing and why does it happen? (laughs) Yes. So when most of us get nervous when we speak in high stakes situation, be they planned or spontaneous and spontaneous is answering questions, giving feedback, making small talk. And one of the things that happens when we get nervous is we perspire, we blush, we get shaky. And I call part of that plumbing reversal. What's normally wet gets dry and what's normally dry gets wet. So we get dry mouth, but sweaty palms, which does not help us in that moment where we have to communicate. Sweaty palms aren't kind of some kind of uh, adaptation that actually improve our ability to perform? As much as it sounds like they should be a social lubricant, they are not. Uh, they, they get in the way, for sure. <laughs> it's definitely, a, I mean, especially a, it's off-putting in, in a physical situation where you're shaking a sweaty palm. It's not, it does not set a good. Well, it's okay, distracting so, as a speaker when you're like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Right. And you're kind of wiping your legs and stuff. Okay. So let's talk about one of the things I, there's, there's a lot of stuff to dive into. I, I, what I love about your book is how practical it is. And even the sections where you say, try it. And I found myself really kind of thinking through some exercises. So I'd love to actually give, you can give me some of the experiences if you want, we can kind of demonstrate for people, but I thought it could be fun. Maybe for folks, if you don't look insane at your desk, you can actually just try along with me if you want. I don't know. We'll see. Depending on where you are, where you're watching this LinkedIn live, you may or may not be able to do this. But tell us about, I think, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind with spontaneous speaking is fear and anxiety. Can you talk about, in your book, one of the things you mentioned is a technique for reframing anxiety. What should folks think when they feel that sense of anxiety? Well, first and foremost, feeling nervous before you speak is normal and natural. Most people experience upwards of 75, 85% of people report feeling anxious in high stakes situations, planned or spontaneous. So it's normal. We often don't see it in other people. We have this weird perception gap. What we experience And what others see is different. And when I teach my MBA students, one of the first things we do is we digitally record them giving a talk and almost to a person, they will say, I looked more confident than I felt. So I think one of the best ways to put your anxiety into perspective is to realize that you don't look as bad 
as you feel. So anxiety looms large. There are lots of things that we can do to manage anxiety. One way is to reframe it. The mindset uh, we take as it, we approach our anxiety really can matter. And, and you're talking about a technique that was first researched by a friend and a colleague at Harvard's Business School. Her name is Allison Woods Brooks. And she did some research that was founded on this notion that the physiological reactions that we have to anxiety are the same that we have when we're excited. Our body has one essential mm. arousal response. Our heart rate goes up. We get a little shaky. We might blush. These happen. If I said, Jeremy, you have to give a speech in 10 minutes, you might have these same physiological reaction and you think, oh, this sucks. But I might say, hey, Jeremy, you just won the lottery. Same physiological responses and you're going to be really mm -hmm. excited. So what Allison did is she actually studied if you can help people reframe the physiological experience they have as excitement versus anxiety they actually not only feel better, they perform better. Their communication actually mm. is better. So reminding mm. yourselves that this could be exciting. You have value to bring. You're going to help people learn something. And if you can lean into that and see it as exciting, it can really help. Yeah, that's beautiful. I actually, uh, it wasn't a public speaking moment per se, but my daughter had a piano recital mm -hmm. and she was sitting beside me. She said, dad, I'm so nervous. And I said, tell yourself you're excited. Yeah. What's What's going on there when we reframe it? Is it, are we actually able, are we in a sense relabeling that physiological yeah. response? Absolutely. We are relabeling it and we're giving ourselves permission to see something that we thought was negative as something that could be positive. And, and by viewing it positively, not only does it help us relax, but it also helps us connect more. When we see it as something of excitement, it takes us out of ourself and puts us in service of the other. And there's a whole bunch of research around anxiety management and communication that says when you are other focused, it actually helps you uh, not only connect better and get your message across, but it helps you feel better about the experience. So reminding yourself that you have value to bring and it's exciting to help others can be a great way to manage anxiety. Yeah, I really, I like what you said there about in service to the other, because even as, even as I was interacting with that, I don't know if you call it a mantra or a motto or whatever, but I have value to bring. Yeah. If the emphasis is on the I, that yeah. can seem selfish. But what you're saying is it's actually about it's the emphasis is on the bringing. It's the giving. Yes, it's the sharing. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. And the, I like calling it a mantra or positive affirmation. You know, if we were to listen to what we say to ourselves right before we speak, either planned or spontaneously, we say a lot of negative things to ourselves like, oh, well, you better not screw up or you should have practiced more or why am I doing this and not Jeremy? All of those negative things actually set us up to do poorly. And if you can replace those negative thoughts with something positive, and it doesn't have to be like, I'm the best speaker ever. It could just be, I have value to bring, or people can learn from me, or I know my stuff. That helps quiet down that negative self-talk and sets you up for success. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about just in relation to the whole anxiety thing. The rule of lung. What's the rule of lung? And how do <laughs> you really did a good that? job of reading the chapter? You get an A plus on the book report. So yeah, I've got to do my homework. I've got to that's do my right. Homework. So perhaps the most important thing to do to manage anxiety and bolster confidence is deep breathing. The kind of breathing you would do if you've ever done yoga, tai chi, qigong, where you really fill your lower abdomen. If you're wearing pants, they should feel tight as after you've inhaled. And the key is the exhale, not the inhale, the relaxation response occurs upon exhalation. And the best way to encourage that to happen is to have your exhale be twice as long as your inhale. And that's what I call the rule of lung. You know, it's not a rule of thumb. It's a rule of lung. You want your exhale to be twice as long as your inhale. So if you take a three count in, hold for a second and take a six count out. And the cool thing is you only have to do that two or three times to experience the benefit of the reduced heart rate, the adrenaline calms down, the sweating and blushing all dissipates a bit by just doing deep breathing. So how, when, I, when I think about that, because I, I was interacting with that, I feel a lot of times when spontaneous or improvisational speech is required, my hesitation with the rule of lung is, is, it get, is there an awkward pause that's going to come in? Yeah. How do I incorporate the rule of lung and even the perceptions mm -hmm. of others with my awkwardness right. if I attend to my breathing? 
So the cool thing is it doesn't have to happen in that moment. You can do it a few minutes in advance and still benefit from it. So if I'm walking into a mixer of some sort or a social gathering where I know chit chat and small talk is going to happen, and that tends to get me anxious, I can take that breath before I ever walk into the room. If we're virtual and I'm about to go into a meeting where I might get questions about my part or contribution, before I hit the unmute button, I can take that deep breath. Nobody knows what I'm doing. So it doesn't have to be in the immediate moment. Now, that said, if you feel like you need to take that breath, you can pause. A pause is great. I'll give you an example. In Q&A situations, people often feel that they have to immediately answer the question. So as soon as you stop asking, I have to immediately answer because that demonstrates I know my stuff. It's okay to take a pause. And in that pause, mm. you can take a breath. So uh, there are lots of ways to do this without it adding more stress. The goal of the deep breathing is not to make people more stressed. So give yourself a little a bit of room. You can do it a few minutes in advance. One thing that you're reminding me of, actually, there's two things. One is I should have hit mute because as you're talking about deep breathing, I'm trying deep breathing and perhaps, I don't know if people heard it. <laughs> I talked so much, Jeremy, nobody heard it. Okay, that's good. And then the second thing you remind me of is our colleague, Andrew Huberman, who yeah. you're talking about exhaling. One thing I can't even remember the context of it, but I learned about his technique where he says you breathe in and then you breathe in more. Yes, yeah. And apparently what that does is it fills kind of micro sacs yeah. on your lungs with, so anyway, maybe there's the rule of lung breathing out more than you yeah. expect. And then there's a breathing in and breathing in again as a compliment. Right. Yeah. So Andrew was on my podcast and he's the one that taught me about that exhalation. I have been teaching deep breathing mm -hmm. for decades, but I had not learned until I met with him that the exhalation is where the magic happens. So yes, there are lots of different types of breathing. He has that one. He likes to do what, exactly what you're talking about, where you're fully inhaled and then you take just a little bit more air, hold it and release. The same idea is on the exhalation though, it's longer than the inhale. Mm. Okay, let's go to you advocate an unexpected tactic, which is we come at it from a bunch of different angles, but why should we seek to be mediocre? I'll leave it at that just to start with. Yes. So I have a whole chapter in the book. It's called Maximize Mediocrity. And, and here's the reason. It's so counterintuitive, right? In it is. Itself. Well, part of what I loved about writing this book is a lot of the advice is counterintuitive. Like prepare to be spontaneous. But in fact, it makes sense. If you're an athlete, you always prepare before you go into the game. And so it makes sense. But a lot sounds counterintuitive, just like maximize mediocrity. Here's the thing. Most of us, when we communicate, we want to do it right. We have a strong perfectionist bent to it. We want to say the right thing in the right way, in the right moment. And the reality is there is no right way to communicate. There's certainly better ways and worse ways, but there is no one right way. And by putting pressure on ourselves to do it right, we actually reduce the likelihood that we will do it well at all. So for example, think of your brain as a computer. It's not a great example, but it works for this. You know, if you have on your laptop or on your phone, a lot of apps or windows open, it doesn't perform as well because you're taxing its bandwidth. The same thing is true with our brains. If I am constantly judging and evaluating what I'm trying to say while I'm saying it, I have less bandwidth to dedicate to actually just saying it. And this is why memorizing does not work for planned speaking, because if I memorize something, a lot of my mental effort is tracking what I'm saying to the memorized script so I can't be as present. So right. maximize mediocrity simply means give yourself permission just to get it done. Just say what you need to say. And in so doing, because you've dialed down that evaluation, you actually have more resources to do it better. So the full saying is maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. When you get out of your own way, the judging and the evaluating, you actually can do better. Now, I am certainly not saying, Jeremy, that we should never think about what we're saying. We certainly should, but we turn the volume down on that and it can really make a difference. Well, and you know, as when we discussed when I was on your podcast about yeah. idea flow, yeah. one of the counterintuitive ideas I think really dovetails nicely with creativity and idea generation is the way to get great ideas is to allow yourself to have bad ideas, right? Yeah, that's right. And you just said, maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness, which is to say, do lots of bad yeah. so you can get to good, right? Which is very right. similar. 
It's yeah, it's um, it's taking the judgment out. And and you know, the episode you did on Think Fast Talk Smart is one of our most popular and and a lot of it has to do with the the counterintuitive nature of of some of the advice you give and and I think you're right. The the two concepts really connect well. So how can we practice this? And I thought maybe if you want to lead me even through something, maybe folks can do at home as they listen later, or even at their desk now, if people won't think they're crazy. <laughs> when you talk about maximizing mediocrity, how, right. what are simple pragmatic exercises someone could do to strengthen that? The Is it to weaken the perfectionist muscle? I don't know what it is, but- It's what, to what turn down the volume on it is what is the way I say it. So let me give you two activities. How's that? One is silly. And which really brings it to the forefront. And one is uh, less silly and probably a little easier to do. So in my classes, I have the great fortune of working with just some amazing colleagues who are experts at improv. And one of my colleagues who I teach classes with, his name is Adam Tobin. He also teaches at Stanford. He introduced me to this technique. It's a game. It's called Shout the Wrong Name. And anybody listening right now who's in a space that it would be appropriate to do, you can do this. So here's how Shout the name, Wrong Name works. You literally just look around the environment you're in and you point at different things and you simply call them anything but what they are. So if I'm pointing to the window, I might say door. If I'm pointing to this desk, I might say tiger. Just anything that, but what they are. And I instruct my students on the first day of class to do this for 15 seconds. And they find it incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. In fact, Jeremy, can we try this for literally five seconds? I'm going to take five seconds. Okay. And I'd like you to play along. I'll play along. Anybody, wherever you are, as long as you're not too loud, I want you to point at things in your environment and call them anything but what they are. Okay. Five seconds. Ready? Go. Peanut butter, pinochle, banana, rice, orange car, peel, tiger, bones, Galapagos, yellow, distribution ugly. center. All right, time, door. time. You were doing great there, Jeremy. I was listening to some of those things you were saying. Many people. I don't know where they come from. That's right. Well, that, so if you get out of your own way, they come easily. Here, I want to just walk people through a real expedited version of the debrief I do in my classes. And I learned from my, my colleague, Adam, to do. So first, for many people, this was hard. And when I ask why was it hard, people will say it was hard because I couldn't think that fast. And then when we interrogate that more, it's because they're actually judging and evaluating. And then I'll ask, did you do anything that was helpful to you? And people will say, yes, several things. I got into a pattern. So a pattern might be I would call something the opposite. So if I pointed at a window, I would call it a door. If I pointed to the ceiling, I'd call it the floor. Some people say I got into categories. I just went through animals. Other people say I got alliterative. I just stuck with the same letter. This, these are called heuristics. And I know, Jeremy, you're very familiar with heuristics because it's important to the work you do on idea creation, et cetera. Heuristics can be very helpful in thinking and responding, but they can also get in the way because they lock you into something. If I'm going to call everything an animal, it means that I'm going to be able to call things something, but it means I'm not going to call them something else, which might have been in the moment something that was more appropriate. Mm -hmm. What invariably happens when I do this activity with my students is there will be somebody who just gets locked up. They can't do anything. I had a student a couple of years ago who just kept pointing at a chair and nothing came out of his mouth. So I, of course I saw this and I approach, I go, what's going on? And this is what he said to me. He goes, I was not being wrong enough. Now I want you to think about that. I never gave a rubric. I never said, here's a, the, right, the right wrong and the wrong wrong. He, in his mind, came up with some metric of rightness and wrongness. And I said, tell me more. He said, well, I was going to call the chair a cat, but a cat has four legs and a chair has four legs. And sometimes a cat sits on a chair. Do you hear the machinations he is going through, the judging and evaluating? All he needed to do was say cat or something else. And this right. is how we get in our own way. So the power of this activity is it highlights for most people how we judge and evaluate what we say before we say it. And just by becoming aware of it, people realize, oh, I don't have to do that or I don't have to do it as much. So that's the fun, silly way. And anybody can do this at any time. You know, you can do it while you're driving as long as you focus on the road. You, uh, you know, don't hurt anybody. You can do this with your kids. You can do this. And it's a fun game to play. And the thing is, once you let go of this, it's faster and more fun. Now, the more practical application of this is I'd like for people to think about times where they have in the moment responded well and times where in the moment they have not responded as well. And I ask you to think about what was going on in your mind during those times that it went well 
in terms and in times where it wasn't. And invariably, people will say during those times that it was going well, I felt like I was just in the flow. There was this things just came easily. I wasn't judging. I wasn't aware of what was going on as much around me. I just did it. And by reminding yourself of what that's like, you can enter into that state more of lowering the judgment. So two different ways to get at the same thing. Now, how do you, maybe I have just a mental block or something, but even that prompt of remember when it went well or when it didn't, I find myself going, I can't think of a time that it went well, or I can't think of a time that it, are there guideposts that you offer folks to even as they move forward through life to go, Ooh, write that down or, you know, pay attention to that as an example that you can, can you pull that debrief almost into the present as you go through life? Yeah. So part of what I try to develop in all the classes I teach and the work I do is this meta awareness. And that meta awareness is not judging and evaluating, but it's noting things. So it's just, you know, it went really well when I nodded as Jeremy was speaking, because he seemed to say more than he did the time before when I didn't nod. So just making these mental notes that we can then later in time reflect on, I think is really important. So perhaps my wording should be more appropriate. So instead of saying a time it went well, maybe say a time it went better than other times, right? So what are things that are happening when things tend to go better for you in your spontaneous speaking and times when they don't? And let's look to see what what we can do in those circumstances to lean into the behaviors and that mindset we take in the moments it goes better. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. You you mentioned this word heuristics. I'd love to come back to... Yeah. yeah, no surprise to you, I'm sure. So why you mentioned hacking heuristics? Yeah. Why is it important? Because, I mean, I think we all know that there are some real value to heuristics. Yeah. And yet, in your book, right. you actually talk about the need to hack them and to short circuit them. So why is that the case? And then how can we do it practically? Right. So I'm not saying all heuristics are bad. They're, they're, they're actually very helpful. But there are times where our heuristics lock us into a way of responding that might not be so appropriate. So for example, let's say, Jeremy, you share with me something that didn't go as well as you wanted. I know you're traveling. You might tell me, hey, you know, I, the flights were delayed and I had to miss a meeting with somebody. A heuristic that many of us invoke in that case is I just say, oh, well, it, sorry to hear that. It is what it is, right? That's a heuristic. Mm-hmm. It fulfills my obligation to respond to your situation. But in fact, if I do that and I just rely on that heuristic, I might miss an opportunity to really connect with you. Maybe that meeting you missed or were late for was really important to you. And what was needed in that moment for me to demonstrate empathy and concern was to ask you about that. So our heuristics, while they serve as shortcuts to help us respond in a lot of spontaneous situations, can lock us into a way of responding that makes it perhaps less appropriate or not give us the opportunity to take advantage of what could happen in that moment. So I'm not saying eliminate. I'm simply saying, let's turn a habit into a choice. So in that moment, I can make a choice to say it is what it is. Or I could say, oh, I'm sorry you missed that meeting. Tell me more about what that means for you. And and in that moment, it might mean something really important that I ask that question that way. Hmm. And so then how do we, when we, it's one thing to be aware of it. How do we start to hack them practically? Are there tips you have? So I think awareness is the first is we have to note what we do. You know, what are the things that we say in these different circumstances? So every time we walk into a small talk situation, do we say, oh, tell me what you do, right? That's a very common heuristic, asking what people do. Mm -hmm. So noticing, Mm -hmm. oh, I tend to do that. And then challenging yourself, what else could I do? So you can't affect change until you know what your habit is here. And then once you've done that, then become two things. One, start thinking about What are other choices I could invoke in that moment? And then start to observe what other people do. My mother-in-law was amazing at small talk. And I really wanted to lean in and understand what does she do. So several years ago, I just started paying attention and watching. And she would always use the phrase, tell me more. It wasn't a heuristic Mm -hmm. because she would use it in appropriate ways. But I started noticing, oh, this is the, the unlock for her that makes it work. So through observing others, we can begin to see what might work for us. But first, we have to be aware, we have to be open to change, and then open to the experimentation of what it can Mm. be like when we let go of those heuristics. Mm. One thing that is striking me here is how context-dependent some of those heuristics are. are. Is there a short list of context that you recommend? For example, showing up at a dinner party, uh, you know, being at a child's soccer game. Are there, <laughs> right. Is there a short list of kind of environments where you could do a heuristic 
So instead of environments, I would say uh, the demand, the communicative demand is what I would say. And the whole second part of my new book is six situations that many of us find ourselves in where we have to do small talk. And I think those are great places to start, uh, not small talk, to do spontaneous speaking. So there are things like small talk, making apologies, having to persuade or influence somebody, giving feedback, answering questions. We all carry around a whole bunch of heuristics that we use in those circumstances. And, and you know, I could give feedback to my kid at a soccer game. I could give feedback to a colleague. I could give feedback to a student. I have heuristics that I use in each of those specific feedback contexts. So I think that's a good place to start as we explore the heuristics that we use. Research is clear that our first idea probably isn't our best idea. That's true for you, me, as well as your organization. But that first idea is an essential step to better ideas. So how do you improve your idea flow? That's my passion and the work I do with organizations. If you'd like to explore how I can help your organization implement better ideas, let's talk. Check out my website, jeremyutley.design, or drop me a line at jutley at jeremyutley.design. Let's make ideas flow better. Can we talk about giving apologies for a second? Just because I think that's kind of an unexpected one. What are some heuristics you have observed folks defaulting to? And what are some good, useful hacks in an apology setting? That's such a rich, emotionally rich moment, right? I would say the biggest mistake that people make in their apologizing is they don't apologize for their action. They apologize for how they made somebody feel like, I'm really sorry, Jeremy, that I made you upset, right? Instead of, I apologize that I interrupted you when you were speaking, right? Mm. So when I apologize for, people will say, "I, I apologize. I'm sorry that you feel so bad about what I did. That's not a really a, an apology for what you did. That's and that's empty and that's a heuristic. We tend to do that all the time. Instead, a good apology is to acknowledge and identify what it is that you did. I'm sorry that I interrupted you. And then to explain and get at the core of how that might have made you feel. And I could ask, I could say, when I interrupted you, how did that make you feel? Or I could say, I can imagine by interrupting you, you felt that I was devaluing your contribution. So I'm demonstrating that I understand the impact that it had. And then I'm a big fan of making amends. So be very clear what you're going to do. The next time we're speaking, I'll make sure to let you finish. And in fact, I'm going to paraphrase what you said before I contribute my part. So many of us just default to certain responses when we paraphrase. And what we we need to do is really think about how we can make amends for what we did. Yeah, that's great. I think that even that step of, I can imagine, I mean, it's like a parenting trick, right? We do it with our kids. I, I do it with my kids all the time where, you know, it's, how would that make you feel if she had done that to you? Right. And at least kids, you know, I feel like, you know, you reach a certain age in adolescence and they say, oh, I wouldn't care. But a young yeah. child actually says, it would make me sad. And I go, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think that's great. Um, that's lovely. And think about what you're teaching in that moment, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I like taking that as a tactic for myself, imagining what the other person felt. I don't think that we do that nearly enough. No, and that type of empathy is critical to communication. The biggest communication mistake I believe people make is they start from the wrong place. They start from saying, here's what I want to say, rather than what is it that you need to hear. You're familiar with this notion of the curse of knowledge. We know too much about the topics we speak on. The only antidote to the curse of knowledge in my mind is empathy. You have to put yourself Mm -hmm. in the other's perspective, and that's what gets you to be able to communicate better. How do we develop that sense of empathy? Again, getting back to a spontaneous communication moment. I love your line, the only antidote to the curse of knowledge is empathy. In a spontaneous moment, how do we tap into not what we know, but what the audience needs? Uh, Several things. So one is observation. Look at what's going on in the moment. How is somebody uh, holding themselves? Do they look uh, emotional in some way, upset, excited, et cetera? What's the environment I'm in? So noticing the context and noticing the person's demeanor, I think, are really important to give you clues about how to be empathetic and tailor the message to their needs. Asking questions, I think, is really important. Clarifying questions. You know, the trap I always fall into, and I am still working on a lot of these things myself, I'm a problem solver. 
And so, for example, when my wife comes to me, I had a she'll say I had a bad day and all these things happen. I immediately jump in and say, okay, well, here's what we could do to solve it. Have you thought about this? And that's exactly not what she needs or wants. And so I've taken now to asking the question, do you want me to just listen or do you want to brainstorm some ways to address these issues? So another way to get it right and to be empathetic is to ask questions, what's needed in this moment and to express that. And there's some research that says by asking questions like that, you actually bolster trust and credibility because people see you're really trying to connect to them and their needs. That's beautiful. That's spot on. I, as an aside, you've got to watch the YouTube video called It's Not the Nail. Yeah, it's a hilarious. I won't spoil the touch slide, but you just need to like open. I will do right that. I, I, I always take the your nails. Okay. Oh, it's so funny. One thing Ian said, he dropped this into the chat, which yeah. I really like. He said, tell me your story is a great way that Irish folk consistently open dialogue. What's your story? I've always thought that was powerful. Yeah, I love that. I was unaware of that, but I'm going to uh, look into that. And, and then they, I'm a nail. I'm going to do both. Oh, it's not the nail. It's not the nail. It's That's not the, the nail. It's not the nail. Okay. Let's talk for a second about the concept. I'm shifting gears a little bit. There, there's a couple of things that I want to make sure I cover. Cathedral versus brick. Uh-huh. So I learned this from, uh, I talked to a lot of people who are improvisation experts and many of us feel that in our communication, we have to just be brilliant. We have to really make an impact with everything we say. And sometimes the most important thing we can do is minimal or nothing. There's this wonderful saying in the world of improv, don't just do something, stand there. And I love that. It's counterintuitive, but sometimes the best thing I can do is just listen or just nod my head or say, tell me more and let the other person move on. So this notion of all of us want to build a cathedral, this beautiful thing. We want to say the right thing. We want to say it well. We want to have great impact. Yet in the moment, perhaps the best thing we can do is just bring a brick that will help build the cathedral, either that we build or somebody else builds or we collaborate mm. and build together. So again, it reduces pressure. When we feel like we have to build that cathedral on our own and we have to do it immediately, that's a lot of pressure. But if all I have to do is bring a brick that adds to your brick, that adds to somebody else's brick, that feels more manageable and more collaborative. Yeah. yeah I love uh, our colleague Dan Klein has a great line where he talks about if you and I are telling a story, you know, using, let's try it right now, Matt, you yeah. and me, one word at a time story. So I, I love this say, game. And I'm using this to make a point, but I'll say, okay, once upon a time, there was a gorgeous fish who needed to be free. Okay. So one of the things that I said was a, yeah. you know, once upon a time, there was a, and one of the things Dan, Dan mentions is sometimes the most courageous and creative thing you can do is contribute a, or say the, you know, everybody yeah. wants to have the big word, the right. exciting word. You know, I kind of picture that as I was reading your cathedral versus brick analogy, right? Exactly. Everybody wants the fish or the, you know, free, right. That's a great word. It's like, Whoa, you got to say free. But the point is what's the next brick in the sequence. That's, you know, that's what enables somebody else to be able to say free. But I love that the way he puts it is dare to be obvious. Yeah. Just say the obvious next thing. Yeah, exactly. And in, in fact, I had Dan Klein is, is a great friend of mine and he, he partners with Adam, who I've already mentioned. And they are on my this week's episode of my podcast talking no about way. that very concept. So yeah, it's it's it must be in the atmosphere. But yes. Cross promo. Cross there you promo. go. Okay. There you go. Hey, every opportunity. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about your podcast for a second, because this, what folks who listen to my show know is that I love to talk about folks' books, if they've written books, but then I also love to talk about their process. And you are a really interesting creator in that you not only have a book, but you actually have a really robust podcast. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about, first of all, maybe tell folks who don't know it, what is your podcast? What's the premise, et cetera? So the podcast is called Think Fast, Talk Smart. You can see I'm not very creative with names. The book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter. And the podcast was born in January 2020. Its sole focus is to help people hone and develop their communication skills. 
all of us, I believe, can get better at our communication. And so we started it and we interviewed people like you. You've been a guest, a very popular guest of ours. We talked to people who are deep academics in the fields of negotiation and persuasion. And we talk about other issues like speaking as non-native speakers and how to make our ideas resonate, et cetera. And it's been a lot of fun. It's an amazing show. You've got a fan here. Jen Garrett is saying the podcast yes. is fantastic. I know I Jen and she's awesome. Hopefully you enjoyed our conversation on the podcast, Jen. Here's a question for you in regards to podcasting. How do you prepare? These are incredibly spontaneous conversations. What do you do in the sphere of your podcast to prepare to be spontaneous? Yeah, so I work very carefully to understand the guests' needs and what they're approaching. When you were a guest, I read your material. Uh, I looked at some of your sessions you do and, and really try to understand what's important to the person and then I see my role as the host as really the bridge between the guest and the audience. So I put myself in the audience's perspective and say, what would they want to know and what value do I believe that the guest material can bring? So I come up with themes. I might think of some specific questions, but I, I really try to be in the moment. I will write out typical questions and I send them to guests just so they know what I'm thinking of, but I then tell them, I might not ask all these questions and I might change it up. It's going to be very organic and dynamic, but I think it's important to anchor people. Just like I think if you're going into a Q&A session, you should have some themes in mind that you want to cover and maybe some examples that you might want to apply. Again, we're not memorizing or scripting, mm -hmm. but to stockpile, I think makes a lot of sense in some of these circumstances. And that's how I prepare. And then whenever we start, before we actually start recording, I love to engage in just some banter and small talk just to feel that flow and that rhythm, and then we get going. And in fact, you and I did that today before we started this. And I think that's a really crucial part. We all think that we can go from silence to brilliance. And I don't know that that's always true. I think you have to warm up. You know, if you're an athlete or you do exercise, warm up is really important. And I think that's true yeah. for, for these kind of things as well. You know, one thing I found that just in my own practice is yeah. even talking with a guest before, not just in the 10 minutes before, but scheduling a call in the week or two before. It's actually, especially if it's, I mean, you and I know one another, there are guests that I have that I've never met before, you know, and having a phone call, like I'll never forget, I had Ed Catmull on a couple of yeah. months ago and I requested 15 minutes just to yeah. connect with yeah. him ahead of time and kind of feel out what he was interested in. He and I talked for over 90 minutes on the phone. Wow. It was actually, to me, that was actually, I wish that conversation could have been recorded as a podcast yeah. in a way, because it was so interesting, but right. you never know. I mean, I want to respect people's time. And, you know, I say, Hey, if I could talk to you for 15 minutes, it'd be helpful just to talk about themes, things like that. But I find that then when we go live, it's, Hey, how are you? My friend, you know, right. I know you rather than hey, stranger, you know, we don't have to feel each other out because we've kind of established a connection ahead of time. I think that's important. And I think that there's a lesson in that for life in general is take the time to get to know people before you do the heavy lifting and the, and the hard work and the conversations you have to have and the work you have to do. Mm. Mm. Is there anything just on the podcast, one other thing, when it comes to producing, what a lot of folks may not appreciate is that depending on the show, production there's actually a pretty heavy lift after the conversation takes place. Yeah. How do you think about, is there a role for spontaneous or how do you think about your area of expertise as it pertains to the kind of post recording production of a show? Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is editing and some of the best moments that I think happen are the, the spontaneous ones. It's the things mm -hmm. that come from the, the, again, the biggest thing that helps for effective spontaneous communication from my perspective is structure, framework. So spontaneity happens within a structure. I'll give you an example. When you see improvisers do what they do, they're following rules, that rules like yes and. So if you and I are in a scene, Jeremy, and you say, hi, Matt, good to see you, grandpa. I become grandpa. I don't say I'm not grandpa. I'm your boss, right? right? By saying yes and, the improv goes well. Jazz musicians, they don't just play random notes. They actually play chord progressions that they have learned and know their structure. In my book, I interviewed somebody who designs playgrounds, and I found this fascinating. 
it turns out kids play much more creatively and freely and have more fun on playgrounds than if they just had an open field. You would think kids are so creative. They'll just be great. Give them an open field and they'll do great things. It turns out when kids play together in an open field, they start using each other as a playground. So it doesn't go well. But setting up the structure allows kids to be more free and creative. And the same thing is true when it comes to, I think, podcasting and conversations in general, having a structure in general allows for that freedom. So when I'm editing in the post-production, I'm looking for those moments of spontaneity and freedom that really work well, and then trying to figure out how to make them as clear and concise so that people can really appreciate the lessons, but also the sense of experience secondhand of what happened in that moment. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it makes me think too of brainstorming. You know, people can think that that's the most freewheeling, you know, rule-less, lawless environment. But right. what we know as folks who facilitate kind of idea generation is actually, no, it's carefully curated. It's an interaction that is supported by probably the most rules of the design process actually come in brainstorming, right? Because yeah. if you don't have that structure, folks, creativity doesn't flourish. It actually wilts on the vine without that structure. That's a great example. I'm going to start using that as an example of how brainstorming does have these rules and structures that allows it to be as effective as it is. Yeah. And people who know that actually get much better results than people who just think I can wing it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't don't wing it. Do not wing this. Although I'll tell you what I'm here in, I was telling you I'm in Dallas with a company and I had this, I don't know if you've ever done this game Oh, good. Have you ever played that game? I have. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, so for folks who may not know it, there's yeah. kind of, you give one another a gift. So I might say, Hey Matt, you know, here's a AirPod case. And you'd say, Oh, good. I need an AirPod case. Yeah. I need to charge my AirPods yeah, or whatever. Right, you right. say what's good. But then the second prompt is now give them something bad. You know, like I, I, Oh Matt, I've got this staple, you know, Oh, good. Uh, I need to. Uh, uh, I, I need to make sure I don't prick my finger when I have to pull the staple out because I accidentally put it in the wrong quarter. I thought when you looked down, I thought you were going to say I needed something to hold my waistband together, which I thought was going to be amazing. <laughs> that, that's just that was just where that's my probably well, true. But <laughs> I was doing so. I'm doing like a live demo before this whole group of Pepsi execs, and I had this lady say, oh, "Give me a good thing," and it was a scrunchie. I said, "Oh, good, my." Kids are always wanting gifts when I come home from my travels, you know? And then I said, now somebody give me a bad gift. And this woman held up a spoon that was in her yogurt. It like had granola on it. She's like, here's a yogurty granola spoon and that. Okay. And you know, the point of the exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Is when you're thinking, oh, good, right? everything's a gift and anything right. is. And so, because you're, it's not the raw material doesn't matter. It's actually your attitude towards the raw material that matters. That's right. I kid you not, Matt, I'm reaching, and my first thought was not, oh, good. It was, oh, crap, what am I going to do with the spoon, you know? I kid you not, Matt, what I saw myself doing, I grabbed the spoon out of her hand. I took the yogurt off in my mouth, and I said, oh, good. I've been wanting to build up my immune system. The place lost it. I mean, it was the most perfect example of, I had no idea how it was going to be good, but by deciding that it must be good, it became like this amazing moment. (laughs) That's exactly right. You know, one of the things I love about improv and Patricia Ryan Madsen, who is a guru of improv is you just start, you just commit Mm. to start. You say it is good and then you make it good. And so many of us are afraid of taking that initial step of just starting. Mm. And when you do that start, it's amazing what your, your mind can do. So good on you playing that. Oh, good that way. It's always, it feels like you're walking on a, you know, tightrope when you do a live demo, you kind of never know what you're going to get, but that's, it's like moments like that, that it's actually, it's impossible to script and I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, it's just, it's the definition of spontaneous conversation. The last thing I really wanted to talk about, and, and if you have other stuff, then by all means we can, but I wanted to hear about the value of mistakes as, Mm -hmm. and how you reframe mistakes. So I think making mistakes are are critical. That's how we learn. That's how we develop. We tend to not want to make mistakes and we get really upset with ourselves when we make mistakes. So I like to reframe mistakes as missed takes. 
Uh, all of us are familiar with, or many of us are familiar with, when you're recording a TV show or a movie, directors ask their actors to do multiple takes. They use that clapboard where they come in, take one, take two. And they do this not because any one particular take is bad or wrong. They're simply looking for difference, for variety, to pull out something a little more subtle or something of that nature. So maybe the actor stands and then maybe the actor sits and delivers the line. Maybe the actor looks directly at the camera or looks away. Each take is slightly different, but none is wrong. None, they're, they're just looking for nuance. They're looking for difference. So mm. actors don't feel like, oh, I screwed up because I have to do another take. It's just part of the job. It's part of what you do. And the ultimate right. goal is the more takes you do, the better the outcome is in the end. And so if we can see the foibles that we have or the misspeaking that we have is just a missed take, and we're just going to do another take the next time we do it. It takes a lot of pressure off of us. It allows us to learn and see ourselves as developing and growing. So I love this notion of missed takes. In fact, when I make a mistake in, uh, in my teaching, I'll do this all the time. I'll just stop and I'll tell my students, all right, take two. And we do it either again, or we just take off from there. And it's empowering actually, rather than disempowering. Mm, that's great. There's really something powerful there that you just called out that's worth noting. Calling attention to it doesn't make it worse. Sometimes yeah. it actually legitimizes. There's kind of the what layer of operating, and then there's the how layer mm -hmm. of operating. And the content itself is often the what. How I respond to the content is often, there are principles there that I hope to communicate or impart, right? And when you say take two, that's not a content piece. It's actually, we value the opportunity to learn from errors, right? Yeah. And I don't have to hide and I'm not embarrassed. And in fact, I'm so proud of it. I just called it out. But to me, what that does is it reinforces a value that is at the kind of operating system level. And the only way you can do that in that case is actually by calling out a mistake. Absolutely. And I think it can be very useful in terms of for anybody listening in who's a leader or a parent by demonstrating it. I think it's really important. Now, I will say, Jeremy, there are times where I think doing that kind of meta explanation or demonstration can actually work against you. Let me give you the example of when we're nervous saying, oh, I'm so nervous before we speak. I actually mm. think that does a disservice to you. Uh, we do it yeah. because we want sympathy and empathy from the audience. But in so doing, what we've done is prime the audience to notice everything we do that conveys we're nervous. So right. there are times where I think exactly what you said it demonstrates, it role models, it normalizes, but there are certain circumstances, as I gave the example of expressing anxiety, it can actually work against you. So I, again, there's not a one size fits all recommendation here, but I absolutely agree with your point, especially around this notion of mistakes and failure and learning from it. It seems like there's a full circle moment as we come to the top of the hour, as we come back to the beginning of the conversation, because while it's probably bad form to say, I'm so nervous, I bet it's really great form to say, I'm so excited. Absolutely. And, and in fact, do I do that, that all the time. That's actually a gift yeah. to yourself. And yeah. you do it as a gift to the audience because now the audience is interacting with somebody who's excited. Right. <laughs> Which totally. is like a self-reinforcing. It's beautiful. That's I so love cool. it. And it's a nice way to bring things back to, you see, you're very good at this hosting thing. No, 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 no. It's just, I'm, it's just, uh, it's, I got lucky. So one thing I wanted to mention is Aaron dropped in the chat here. He said, I noticed, and I, you and I have actually talked about this. So I thought it might yeah. be fun, kind of a behind the scenes moment. Yeah. Aaron said, I noticed when you both interview people, you'll add a connection point or a quip or make a statement of something you learned while listening to their answer. Assuming you do this intentionally, how do you decide when to do it or how often to do it? I know Matt from our, you know, yeah. lost walk conversations, that this is something that you actually do deliberately. You want to answer Aaron's question? Yeah. So I am a, a passionate learner. And so part of what you're noticing, Aaron, is selfish for me, because when I call it out, it's my way of making sure I remember it. It's like putting a pin in it for myself, because when I say it, I remember it better. So part of it is driven by selfish need. I, in the role of a podcast host or as a teacher, I try in the moment to think of all, I mean, Jeremy is full, he's a fount of knowledge, just so many interesting, good, useful ideas. I try to prioritize in my mind, what's the most important that I think is helpful for me and helpful for others? And that's the one mm. that I pick out, or the one that's most counterintuitive, or maybe it's the one that's most subtle. 
but I, there's something that's the of it. It's the most subtle, the most interesting, the most useful. And that's what I'm looking for. And when I listen, and I be, I'm careful because I want to make sure my wife doesn't, my wife always tells me I need to listen better. She says I have to practice what I teach. But when I listen, I try to listen for those thes. So I'm listening like, oh, that's the most interesting thing I've heard him say so far. Or that's the thing that's most intriguing to me. So it causes me to listen in a different way as well. Because if I'm just listening at a high level, it's hard for me to pick out those most important things. So I'm constantly listening for what's the bottom line, what's the most important in this moment to me. That's how I do it. How do you do it, Jeremy? Because you do you know, the same thing. I think for me, I... I agree with your point that I'm a learner and there's something about saying it in my own words that helps. It actually yeah. brings the point together. And also I find there's an extreme case of this, like Scott Galloway, a lot of times he'll joke on his podcast. It's just a thinly veiled opportunity for him to talk about himself. I don't go that far, but yes. I would say that I try not to be an empty vessel in the sense, I read a quote the other day that I loved. It was arrive open, but not empty. Oh, and I, like I thought that was really beautiful. I can't remember who said it. It's not my idea. I just read it. But this notion of I'm open, but I have something to offer too. And I think to me, part of the service that we perform in hosting conversations like this is not just the guest we bring on, but it's actually our own unique perspective on that guest. Because the truth is you're joining a hundred podcasts to talk about your book, right? Why does somebody listen to this one? It also has something to do with me and the worldview and disposition that I bring to the conversation. And why does someone listen? You know, Huberman, they can listen to him anywhere. Why do they come to your podcast to listen to him? Because there's something about you that you bring to that conversation. I feel if we hold ourselves back too much, we rob the audience of the opportunity to be connected to us and be connected to the guest with us. Wow, you've, you've made me feel very good. I do think anyone who's good at facilitating communication and, and interaction brings a piece of themselves to it. And I think that's very important because otherwise it's just a generic interaction. So I do yeah. think that there's value yeah. in the synergy of the person you're talking with and what you bring to it for sure. Well, and we live like, I mean, even like this silly example of the spoon with the yogurt, yeah. I probably will never tell that story ever again, but it just so happened that today yeah. I'm talking to you and now it's like, you know, you and I live, we're constantly interacting in the world. And so having an opportunity to share funny things that happen and new insights, you know, I think it increases our repertoire and our breadth mm -hmm. of material that we can bring to bear in the classroom and such as well as teachers. Absolutely. And if you stop using that example, I will start using it because I think it's a great example. I'll give you credit for it, but I think it's a beautiful example of an in-the-moment decision that was made that really hit the mark. Now you'll have to follow up with me and figure out whether I get sick later today. Because if I do, then it may be a cautionary tale. I don't know. Anyway, Matt Abrahams, whose book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter. So privileged to get to have you on the show. Happy Publication Week. And we wish you all the best with the rest of the launch. Folks who joined us today, thank you for joining us. And until next time, hope you have a great day. Thank you, Jeremy. By day, I'm a professor, but I absolutely love moonlighting as a front row student next to you during these interviews. One of my favorite things is taking the gems from these episodes and turning them into practical tips and lessons for you and your team. If you want to share the lessons you picked up from this episode with your organization, feel free to reach out. I'd be thrilled to do a keynote on the secrets that I've gleaned from creative masters or put together a hands-on workshop to supercharge your next offsite adventure. Hit me up at jutley at jeremyutley.design for more information.